0: I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 10, Mark chapter 10, and we'll be reading this morning verses 28 through 31, Mark 10, 28, 31, Picking up where we left off last week, Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now and this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last. And the last, first. I stumbled upon an interesting, not so inspirational quote this past week. And I thought it exposes well why we need this text today. It reads, every dark cloud has a silver lining, but lightning kills hundreds of people every year who are trying to find it. Every dark cloud does have a silver lining, and I guess if you were trying to find the negative in anything, you could recognize that people are struck by lightning. We all at times can be perpetual pessimists. I've seen this in my own life. I've seen it recently. Frequently, since we've been here for about nine months, people ask me, "So how do you like living in Southwest Florida?" And despite the fact that, as we referenced last week, this is the happiest, healthiest place in the world, and it's one of the most beautiful beaches in all of the world, and that it, you can't really complain during the winter time, and it's absolutely gorgeous, sometimes I'm like, "Well, it's kind of flat." <laughs> I miss the mountains. When I was in um, D.C., I enjoyed it, and people would ask, so what do you think of D.C.? Isn't it a great place? I'm like, well, the traffic's kind of bad, and I have to walk everywhere. Los Angeles, no different. I remember thinking, well, my family's not here. It's kind of far away, and I don't like the traffic. And then even when I was in my native North Carolina, I still had complaints. I was glad my family was around, but I could constantly find something to bicker about, and it was typically something like, And we don't have any mountains, and there's no culture, and this place just isn't that interesting. I think we all have this capacity to be able to complain about anything. I even saw it again, I'm going to pick on myself one more time, when a a couple in the area came to visit us on Friday night at our house, and we had done a lot of work to the downstairs part of the house, and they were like, oh, you have such a beautiful home. And we were like, well, it may look good down here, but we still have a lot of work to do upstairs. And the HOA fees, man, it's out of this world. I mean, didn't we just kept complaining about all the other things, and I realized, like, it is pretty easy to find the the dark clouds, (laughs) the lightning strikes, if you will, in any type of situation. I think you can probably identify. Do you ever notice a streak of pessimism in yourself? Maybe when it's in season here in Naples, do you ever complain? When it's in season, it's the traffic. When it's out of season, we can complain about the heat. Think about, in the last two weeks, have you spent any time criticizing or bemoaning your job, your spouse, your children, your house, your schedule? Look, we all struggle with this. And if this is something that we struggle with in the most basic, everyday, and ordinary opportunities, would it not stand to reason that, We would need to fight against this in our discipleship as well. In our walk with the Lord. I wonder if you've ever been tempted to look at the glass as half empty when it comes to your relationship with Jesus. Do you see following Jesus primarily as a positive thing or a negative thing? When I was growing up as a kid, they would always close the services with what they called the invitation. How many of you grew up in a church that did that? You have formal invitation. For those of you who aren't familiar, typically I'm inviting people to respond in the message. Some churches choose to belabor that to the very end and delay it, and they want people to respond, typically by walking the aisle, coming forward. If you've ever seen a Billy Graham crusade, you know what an invitation is. The most popular song of all time in an invitational setting is Just As I Am. The second most popular song of all time is a close I don't know if it's second or third, but I Surrender All and I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. You ever heard those songs? Now, the interesting thing to me about these songs, every time we were singing them, especially the latter two, I Surrender All and I Have Decided, we made it sound like we were singing a funeral dirge. I mean, I could hear people crying, you know, in the sides, like, Oh, no, somebody's deciding to follow Jesus. I'm giving everything to the Lord, and it's just such a tough thing to do. I think in those settings, what we're betraying is the fact that we're looking at our Christian experience through the lens of the pessimist. We're seeing the the half-empty. Now, if I were to ask you, strictly speaking, is it worth it to follow Jesus? You would say, well, of course it is, because of heaven. I mean, heaven is worth it. I mean, eternal life. But is it even worth it to follow Jesus in this life? Like right now. Is right now, the current experience, is it all pain and no gain? Or do we just keep holding on until Jesus comes back? It's a great question to ask because when you look at the the previous chapters that we've been in, in the book of Mark, as Jesus has been clarifying what it means to follow Him, it would be really easy to look at the half-empty. I mean, if you think about it. We've heard Jesus say some pretty hard things in the book of Mark so far, and it's been especially intense in the last few weeks. Let me just give you some memorable lines from the text. Take up your cross and follow me. If you gain the world, you'll lose your soul. Jesus is going to suffer and die, and his followers will as well. Look, here was one from just three weeks ago. Figuratively speaking... You should be willing to dismember your own body parts to advance for the kingdom of God. Another one, marriage should be permanent at all costs. And even if you endure in any cost divorce, you should probably remain single because it could be adultery. Then last week, just topped it off, rich people can't enter the kingdom of heaven and culturally defined... Almost every one of us in this room are considered rich. Now, for more explanation on any of those things, you need to go back and listen to the previous messages. But so far, it's kind of like a a pretty dark cloud, if you will, has risen over the book of Mark. What happened to those powerful and moving testimonies of the power of Jesus and how He helps us in the storms of life and how, how He comes to our aid and how He heals the sick? It just seems kind of dark if you're choosing to focus on the darkness. It could seem like it's all pain and no payoff in this life, in the here and now. And doubtless, the people in the first century would have been very tempted to look at their Christian experience in the same way. We know that the book of Mark was written to a group of believers probably in the city of Rome in the mid-50s A.D., in which Nero himself was about to take power, Many of them were suffering physically for their faith. They were marginalized for the gospel. They would easily lose jobs and social status for claiming allegiance to Jesus. And Mark knows this. And Jesus knew that this would happen as well for his disciples. And he was clear on the heels of another radical call to follow him. To encourage them. He wanted to encourage them in the midst of the pain that it takes to follow him, by giving them some benefits of following Jesus. It's good to remember the positives every once in a while. It's good to remember what you're in this thing for. I'm glad we can be clear together as a church on the pain and the sacrifice and the persecution associated with following Jesus. But Jesus himself would also have us remember the benefits, the assets, the positives, and he gives us two of those in the text today. The benefits both in this life and benefits in the life to come. Let's look at the first set of benefits, benefits in this life that come to us for following Jesus. Look at verses 28 to 30 again, and I'll stop about halfway in verse 30, but catch the overall flow of how this thing's going down. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said in response to that, Truly I say to you, there's no one who's left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now and this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution. Now let's stop there. Jesus intended for his followers to, to follow him, obviously, through all the pain. But he also wanted them to understand that there was some pleasure to this. There were some benefits to following him in this life. But before he gets to those benefits, I appreciate how things develop because he actually concedes one more time for us, in case we weren't clear on it yet, that it is costly to follow Jesus. Peter is provoked by what just took place. Do you remember what had taken place? There was this wonderful opportunity for this wealthy man to come and follow Jesus and be a part of his team. And Jesus sets up the conversation in such a way to reveal this man's idolatry and materialism. And the man is faced between choosing his wealth or choosing Jesus. And what does he do? He chooses his wealth. He forsakes Jesus for the things of this world. And then Jesus explains to his disciples, It's hard to follow me. It's impossible to follow me. And riches make that especially difficult because you can be so self-sufficient. And then Peter, like on the heels of this, almost wants to congratulate himself. And he says, hey, hey, recognize something. We left everything and followed you. And Jesus comes right back at him and says, indeed, you have left a lot. But you've never really left everything. It isn't all sacrifice. There's some good to this as well. But Jesus is quick to acknowledge that, yes, indeed, these men have left things. And he is acknowledging for us today that to follow Jesus does cost us something. There, There is difficulty that we face in this life. And he reminds them of this in a very clear way. Notice what he says they give up. You see it there, right in your text. He says in verse 29, Truly I say to you, again, another official judicial pronouncement, I want you to understand what I'm about to say. There is no one who has left. And then he acknowledges house, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, lands. Now, the house is just simply where you live. So some people were giving up where they lived. Brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, what's that? That's the nearest relationships that they have in this world. And then other people had given up lands, fields, property, earning power, which, by the way, shows us something. People in this culture didn't own lands. (laughs) Wealthy people did. So remember when he said that it's impossible for the rich to get into the kingdom of God? Some rich people, even by those standards, still entered the kingdom. They would give up all. Not many, but some would. And so he's saying that where you live, the nearest relationships that you have, your property, your earning power, these things are given up to follow me. Now, there's a huge question here. In what sense do followers of Jesus give up these things to follow him? I would dare say that all of us in this room live in a house, have family, and have a job. And Jesus is acknowledging that these men have given this up. Well, there's two ways in which Jesus is referring to them forsaking all. All of Jesus' followers, here's the first one, all of Jesus' followers leave these things insofar as they forsake them as an idolatrous attachment. Everyone following Jesus forsakes these things insofar as they are an idolatrous attachment. So all of us, if we have truly came to faith in Christ, let's be really clear about this. We love Jesus more than any of these things. We love Jesus more than our house. We love Jesus more than our family. We love Jesus more than our job. Are we clear on that? If you love pleasure more than Jesus, if you love these things more than Jesus, you cannot and you will not follow Him. And this is crystal clear. Listen to this text I'm going to read you where Jesus makes it even more clear. Note it, but you don't necessarily need to turn there. Hear what Jesus says in Luke 14, verses 26 to 33. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. We'll skip down to verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's ultimately challenging people to think He's saying, look, it's going to cost you something to follow me. And your family relationships can't get in the way of that. Your jobs can't get in the way of it. He says, you need to be willing to forsake everything. And I love the fact that Jesus is just so upfront about it. He says, count the cost. And then he gives two illustrations. He says, who's going to like, invest in building a tower, which would be a pricey enterprise, and not sit down and think, do I have enough money and do I have enough resources to do this thing? Nothing is as embarrassing as a half-finished job. <laughs> and he's saying, look, I don't want you to do this. I don't want you to step into this situation where you're going to start following me and then realize, ah, oh, this is a little more than I really intended on paying, and then abandon it halfway. He's trying to save them the embarrassment. He says, think hard about what it means to follow me before you do it. Why? Because he will be first. That's what it means to follow him. You have put him First, so, in what way have we left all? Hopefully, we all understand that what we love and care for more than anything in this life isn't our own families, isn't our jobs, isn't our stuff, but it's Jesus himself. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a Christ follower. But there's another sense in which this is true, that they had left everything. Some, not all, but some of Jesus' followers literally, not just figuratively, but literally forsake these things and walk away from these things and choosing to follow Jesus. For many, the willingness to forsake all must become an actual walking away from things. Many of you were at uh, Secret Church just last Friday night, and you heard the testimony of the young lady from Iran who married an individual and it was a trick. And then ultimately, in the end, the government confronts this woman, asks her whether or not she's a Christian, and tells her that she's going to have to choose between being able to keep the child and remain a Muslim or continue in her Christianity and give up the child. And she gave up the child. It happens. Even in many Jewish contexts over the years, when somebody has converted to Christianity, and we see this in the Muslim world as well, they'll actually hold a burial or a funeral for the family member, proclaiming the fact that they are no longer a part of their human family. We who have grown up here in America, we do not experience that all the time, but there are some situations, even here in the United States, where people literally have to walk away from things to follow Jesus. Living in Los Angeles for five years, I came across several individuals who were involved in the real estate market. And I remember one particular man who his whole life, his whole real estate life, was actually involved with selling houses or securing houses for pornographic movie studios so that they could do their film shoots. And when he came to faith in Christ, he had to literally walk away from his job and his contacts and everything that he knew and start all over again. This not only happens for the person in pornography or for the prostitute, but it can even happen for one of you. If you're in a business that is not doing things ethically, one that is trying to rip people off, it may cost you your job to follow Jesus. And so we realize that Figuratively, we're all willing to forsake all to follow Him. He's going to be first in our lives. But sometimes, you see this happen in real, concrete, actual ways. And Jesus acknowledges that that happens. Why would anybody do this? Why would anybody ever walk away from a child? Why would anybody ever walk away from a family? Why would anybody ever walk away from a good-paying job? It's not just the sacrifice, but it's what you sacrifice it for. Jesus said, if you do this for my sake and for the gospel. That's what we as Christians see to be first and supreme. Jesus, and I love how he puts something very practical with it, Jesus and the gospel. How do I know if I'm really passionate about Jesus? Well, At the same time, you'll also be passionate about the gospel. You'll be passionate about the message of the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for sinners. Your life is committed to Jesus, yes, but how do we know our life is committed to Jesus? Because we are consumed with the advance of that foolish message to people who don't want to hear it. That's not just the preacher, that is the people. We all together are consumed with Jesus and the gospel and we're willing to do whatever it takes to see that advance. I need to ask before we move on, have you forsaken all to follow Him? I see there are some of you who are visiting with us today. Some of you have been visiting for several weeks. I'm glad you're here. But has there ever been a point in your life in which you realized or convinced by the Spirit that you know, living for yourself and your own sinful propensities is just not satisfying, and you found that Jesus was more satisfying, and so you turned your back on those things and placed your faith in Him alone? That's what it means to follow Him. So having acknowledged the loss of life, or loss in this life associated with discipleship, Jesus is now prepared to convey the benefits. And the benefits that we see here are pretty concrete. He uses some pretty dramatic speech. Notice where he says in verse 30, who will not receive a hundredfold now and this time. And then he starts to list all these things. Now, you need to understand something. When Jesus uses the phrase a hundredfold, he is speaking in a figure of speech just like we would speak. So if I were to tell you there were a thousand and one different ways to do something, I do not literally mean that there are a thousand and one ways to do something. I mean, there's a whole lot of them. (laughs) All right, when Jesus says a hundredfold, he's not going to be an exact 10,000% beyond what you have. How would you ever have 10,000 of family members, 10,000% increase in family or a 10,000% increase in a house or a 10,000% increase in land? This is not what he's talking about. He's just basically saying that you're going to have a super abundance. You're not going to have any lack. And what is it that they're going to receive that's going to be so categorically better in this life? Look at the text carefully. What do you see there? Well, you're going to see houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands. Now, all right, I'm going to ask you to use your brain power for a moment. Examine that carefully. Is anything missing there? It looks like he's repeating everything from the immediate verse but we'll notice carefully that there is something missing. In this list, he says, you will not gain in this life fathers. Why not? Why is fathers missing from the list? It's because when you come and follow Jesus, you receive a new father. You don't receive fathers plural. You receive one, the heavenly father. You become a part of his family. And this omission combined with what this list gives us here enables us to see the first of the provision that God gives us in this life, and that is a better family. One of the resources that we have right now in this life when we come to Jesus is that we become a part of the family of God. God becomes our Father, and then we, who belong to Him, become brothers and sisters in Christ, and He intended for this to be a real benefit that they would recognize of following Jesus. He's already said this in Mark chapter 3. Remember when Jesus' own physical blood family comes to save him from himself because they think he's crazy? And they're standing outside of this building and they're trying to get in and somebody comes to Jesus while he's in the middle of teaching and he says to him, hey, your family's standing on the outside and the people who are sitting there submitted to him, listening to him, he says, these are my family. We have a new family. Those who submit themselves to Jesus become a part of something New, something better. Growing up in the South, we used to always use the terms brother and sister. We used them quite often. I think some of you would find that strange if I called you brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so. But it was just a normal thing to do. And people used that language a lot. And we would sing the old Bill Gaither song, I'm so glad to be a part of the family of God. And one of the interesting things that would take place, though, is even though we just use that title so much, there were times in which the reality was behind it, but there were times in which the reality was never there. It was just a hollow part of the culture. It wasn't really true. You know what Jesus is saying here? You're not just going to get a title. You're not just going to call one another brother and sister. There's going to be an actual family relationship. Amongst real Christians, you will experience family closely related to this there's the houses and lands but let's just park on that family for a minute this has been the reality of the Christian movement down through the centuries if you go all the way back to the 300s AD you'll find one of the early church fathers John Cassian, say this he says you have each left but one father and mother and home And as you have done so, you have gained without any effort or care countless fathers and mothers and brothers, as well as houses and lands and most faithful servants in any part of the world to which you go, who receive you as their own family, welcome and respect and take care of you with the utmost attention. Have you ever had that experience for those of you who have been in church for a while and maybe you've visited another country uh, for the sake of a missions trip or a trip to encourage a missionary? You find that sense of peace, that sense of family anywhere in the world immediately as soon as other people find out that you belong to Christ too. That's part of the promise here. I've seen this happen in my own life time and time again. In my pursuits to try to do what I think would be best for the gospel, I go out to places and I find a family. I remember particularly when we were in California And Tanya was actually supporting our income to the tune of about 60% doing medical transcription. I go out there without hardly any support, and I'm working at Chick-fil-A, so that's 40%. Well, her company gets bought out by some other company, and everything gets outsourced to India, and she no longer has a job. So now we're down to 40%, and I already didn't have enough in the first place. But I remember having only known those people at that church for about three months them coming to us and said, look, if you need a place to stay, we'll move the kids out of this room. You can stay in this one. And then as it comes to your basic resources for living, we'll pass the hat and we'll make sure you're taken care of. I've had that confidence wherever I go, not as a preacher, but as a Christian. I have a family. You have a family. That is a benefit of following Jesus. And You catch this in the context. This isn't just all family and all good. We need to understand that there are limitations to this as well. (laughs) Not only do we get family and do we get resources, but Jesus even adds, with persecutions. (laughs) I love how Jesus is just so clear. He's so real. He'll He'll give the promise, he'll give the benefit, but then he's always trying to be clear about how people will interpret that. I think many of the pastors on Trinity Broadcasting Network would probably need to pay careful attention to those two words, with persecutions, so that people who are watching would not be deceived into thinking that they could somehow give $100 of seed money to some televangelist and hope that they're going to have Rolls Royce sitting in their parking lot or in their driveway in the next three weeks. And I know you know better than that. But how would you help somebody who's deceived in thinking that way? The realities of a text like this. He doesn't just say, I'm going to give you a hundredfold. He says, I'm going to give you a hundredfold these things for my sake, for the gospel. And then he even adds, with persecution, we will experience hardship in this life. Jesus will not allow us to forget that our best life is not now, but it's still to come. And while the fruit of following Jesus in this life is sweet, it's never more than bittersweet. I mean, this is still this life. So following Jesus is costly, yes, but in the end, it's worth it. So what are the ways, practically speaking, that you're provided for in this life if you're following Jesus? I want to point out a couple of the silver linings, if you will, and try not to get struck by light. The first one is, we all in here enjoy new relationships. He said that for them, and that is true of us. It's not just a formality, it's an actuality. Believers are an actual family Uh, to help you think of this just think of the principle of marriage what happens in marriage well in God's eyes two people become one he sees them as a unit even though they still see themselves as separate in a similar way when we come into the family of God when we start to follow Jesus we thought of ourselves as one but then we become part of the many we have a new identity It's like there's this progress in marriage where we realize that our last name is more important than our first name. And in a similar way, when we come into the family of God, we realize that Christ's name is even more important than our last name. Why do some people move from their families to go minister across the world? Because of Christ's name. Why because they know that they are a part of a new family. They have a new mission. So even though it's an actuality, all of us here today who are following Jesus are brothers and sisters in Christ. I want you to know that even though it is an actuality, it must be, to borrow a word, actualized. You you need to live this way. You need to take advantage of these benefits. I want to encourage you with this. I've seen this work out beautifully in this congregation, even in the nine months that I've been here. Uh, our brother that we prayed for earlier, Jim DeSelms, I talked to him earlier this week about this and he had just come to our church uh, last year around this time and it was not long at all till he was here and he experienced some major trials in his own life with the passing of his wife and then the passing of his mother and then on top of that all types of medical maladies and things and trials and challenges incessant. And yet when I sat across from him at the table this week, he listed off no less than 10 or 12 different members of this church who had been family to him in recent days. And I'm telling you, that is a benefit of being a part of the family of God. We need to actualize it. We need to live it out. The resources are there. The relationship is there. You just need to act as if it's there. And if you don't have this, because I realized that even with the rise of social media and FaceTime and Skype and all that type of thing, we live in the most lonely generation ever. You say, you know what, I claim to be a Christian and yet I've even been sitting here for the last few weeks and I don't feel that, that family type of thing. I, I want that type of relationship. Well, one of two things are true. It's either you're not really following Jesus or maybe you could just give us a chance to help you experience that. Hey, look, it's family, and we know that no families are perfect, especially on this side of eternity. And because of that, we need a little bit of help sometimes in trying to enjoy that family relationship. And one of the announcements that Pastor Andrew just made earlier is indeed an attempt for us to do that. Do you know why we do these Life at Faith classes? It's to help you become a part of the family here. You know what happens in those, by the way? Nothing special, nothing magical, no incantations. It's pretty simple. The pastor tries to, a pastor will try to equip you for ministry and family ministry within the walls of this church. And then there will be a one-on-one meeting with a pastor in which he's going to try to disciple and equip you and connect you with other people in the church family. And then we're going to introduce you to the congregation so that they can be aware of your needs and serve you as a family. And then we clarify our commitment to one another. That's what it means. You know, this is our attempt to overcome the loneliness of this world. You could still sit into a small church like this and be just as anonymous as you would be somewhere like First Baptist or Summit. It's all about you taking advantage of the family resource that's been offered to you. And I would say that even at a large church, I've been a part of that. You can enjoy family, but you have to take advantage of it. You have to remember that you're part of a family, and then you have to act as if you're part of a family So that is a benefit of following Jesus. We have a family. We want to be a family for all of you who are struggling and battling for the sake of the gospel and Jesus. We want to be in this together with you. And not only do you have family, but you also have resources. He says that you get a hundredfold houses and a hundredfold lands. What is that other than resources to do that which God has given us? When we give up the idols of materialism and money, it could put us in a bad spot. Remember the... The real estate guy I was telling you about, he lost his job. (laughs) He needed a new job. Where is he going to find a new one? It's the family of God that would help him with that. Me and Tanya went out to California and we lost our income. Who was going to help us with that? It was God's people who helped us with that. It's not just relationships, but it's also resources. You will always, as a follower of Christ, have enough resources to do what God wants you to do. Now, notice that qualification. You will have enough resources to do what God wants you to do. I can't guarantee you that God wants you and your family to go to Disneyland next month, all expenses paid. But, I can guarantee you that you will have abundant what you need to propagate the gospel in your sphere of influence. As a pastor of this church, I see this. I I know, and the pastors here know, that God has the resources for us to do whatever we need to do here. It's there. I don't worry about that at all. But it's not just on a church end, it's also on the individual end. What I want to encourage you with, dear believer, is that you should not let financial risk for Jesus keep you from radically following Him. Say, in what sense? Well, you know what I think of, just practically speaking, I think of like, like a mom who's maybe working a job, but wants to spend more time at home so she can more effectively shepherd her own kids. Like, oh no, I don't know how that's going to work for us financially. Listen, God promises the resources if you're trying to do this for the sake of gospel ministry to your own kids. And I'm not even saying that every mom has to do that, but if you do want to do it, you're going to have the resources to do it. Or you think of a dad who wants to switch jobs so that he can spend more time in the local church or with his own family. I don't guarantee that you're going to make more money, but I can guarantee that you'll have everything that you need and in abundance. One of my mentors back in Los Angeles worked for a Fortune 500 company, and they wanted him to step up into an executive vice president role, and he turned down a massive raise in benefits and actually had to end up leaving the company because of the bad blood that was there and take just a normal job as a CPA. And guess what? Even though he lost that opportunity, he has everything he needs to follow Jesus and more. You know, I think there's another category. I don't mention this much, but I think it's worth mentioning, especially in a church like this. I think that there could be some of you who are here today who are maybe interested in pursuing something like foreign missionary service or maybe even pastoral ministry. God's given you that desire And you think, oh, it's too late for me, man. I'm in a career. I don't know how I'm going to pay for that. I don't know how I'm going to do that. I don't know how I'm going to leave my job here and go somewhere else. Look, I want you to know you will have a hundredfold everything you need if you are devoted to Jesus and his gospel. Don't ever let resources or relationships keep you from following Jesus in the most radical ways. So in addition to the benefits of following Jesus in this life, we also have benefits in the life to come. Benefits in the life to come. When you look at the second half of verse 30, Jesus continues right on the heels of that, telling them what they'll receive in this life. He says, And in the age to come, eternal life. Eternal life. Now that's been the thrust of the passage so far. You remember that this little conversation happens in the overall context of them being concerned about who's going to enter the kingdom. He says that the childlike are going to enter the kingdom because they're needy and dependent and not prideful. They're willing to depend on Jesus. And then he also says that the wealthy will have a hard time entering the kingdom because they have so much stuff that they think that they don't need anything and therefore they won't depend on Jesus. But he's used several different words so far in the context. He's used entering the kingdom four different times in this context. He used the term salvation another time in this context. And now for the second time, we see the word eternal life. They're all the same. When we talk about entering the kingdom, salvation, being saved, receiving eternal life, I want you to all understand today that that's the same deal. We're talking about that ultimate, end time, salvation. Salvation. Now, if you're not familiar, the reason why we need this, by the way, is because of death, and the reason why death ever came on the scene in the first place is because of sin. It goes all the way back to Genesis. And this world's been messed up ever since our first parents' disobedience. We see the manifestations of that disobedience in our own lives as we constantly do things that we know we shouldn't do and get in trouble for them. But we see the the experiences and the consequences of that in more tangible ways because everyone we love dies, and all of us, too, will one day die. It's a a, a horrible situation. It's a horrible plight for mankind to be in, and yet that is the ultimate reason why we see the, the stories in Scripture recorded for us is because God wanted to assure us that even though we messed it up, even though this world is cursed, there is an ultimate deliverance from that. Even though death comes, there is eternal life to be enjoyed. And it was reversed for us fully by Jesus when He died on the cross, paying the penalty for that sin, and He rose again showing that all who would believe in Him could also have that same kind of life. So here's the point for you today, you've got to get this. Following Jesus, listen to me, following Jesus, that's the path to eternal life. Following Jesus is the path to eternal life. Many of you know the famous passage in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Let me jog your memories. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Anybody ever heard that verse before? Please raise your hand. Wow, only half of you. That's weird. <laughs> You just heard it right then. So all of you have heard the verse. (laughs) Interesting thing about that verse. We always focus on entering into the gate. And we get it. We can preach a blue streak about Jesus being the only way to heaven. You can do it too, even if you're not a preacher. He's the only way. He's the only way. And we're talking about entry. But notice that Jesus says it's not just a narrow gate, but he also said it is a hard way. How do we miss that? Look at the text, or hear the text again. He says, the gate is wide and the way easy that leads to destruction. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. That's why I say, it's not just Jesus that is eternal life, but following Jesus is what leads to eternal life. Life eternal comes through following Jesus. As hard as that may seem, that is the way. The quest for eternal life has been going on for thousands of years, and it's littered with stories of failure and catastrophe. I mean, you can look all the way back to the time of the pyramids and see where people were just trying to figure out, how do we beat death? You know, the search continues today. I found it interesting that Dmitry Iskov, who's the godfather of the Russian Internet, he's one of the most wealthy men in the entire world, he says it is his goal, realistically speaking, to live to 10,000. Larry Ellison, the co-founder of Oracle, finds the notion of accepting immortality incomprehensible. And then, uh, Sergey Brin, the co-founder of Google, he and his team are right now currently working and hoping and are optimistic that they will one day be able, and I know this sounds crazy, but they think that they will be able to cure death. They're pouring a lot of time and money into this, But I want you to know, we already have a cure. And that's in Jesus. We have seen someone with historical record to back it up, actually overcome death and provide the same for others who are associated with him. None of these men have that kind of proof. We have an empty tomb that we can hold on to to say that, yes, there is a possibility. There is not a possibility, there's a probability, it's a reality that we can't overcome. And nobody else has been able to have this, and they've been searching for thousands of years, and people give up all kinds of time and money and expense. And yet, for simply following Jesus, for giving up on the things that, that call out to us from this world and simply pursuing Him alone, we receive eternal life. That's a benefit, my friends. That is huge. What trade in this age is too much for eternal life in the age to come? Think about it. Is there anything that this world could offer you that is better than the promise of eternal life to come? Why would you not give up anything to follow Jesus? I mean, does the idea of eternal life appeal to you at all? Do you recognize, and I say this respectfully here, I... I know it's easy to kind of twist this and make people like scared to leave the building, but I, I do need to ask a really hard question. Do you realize the impending nature of your own death? Again, I don't play this card every week, so just hear me out right now. One arrested heartbeat, one blood clot, one wrong turn of the steering wheel away from death. I mean, that's, that's all of us in this room. I mean, do you understand that every time you go to the doctor, every time you go through the pain of exercise, every time you take another pill, you are expressing your desire for eternal life? And ultimately, what I'm trying to tell you is that Jesus, the one who overcame death, says, you can have it if you just follow me. The main point of this for us as believers is that if you're tempted to ever wonder, is it worth it? If you're tempted to think that following Jesus may be a little too hard, if you don't know if you, you've got a good deal, just remember, it will be worth it all when you see Jesus. When you recognize in the age to come that you have life eternal. Interestingly, though, that is not the only benefit for the life to come. There's one final verse and we'll be done. This sums up the entire section in verse 31. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. One scholar called this a slogan for the revolutionary values of the kingdom of God. If we haven't got it yet, you'll get it by now. That just the way to enter into the kingdom is just not the way you typically think it is. It is so countercultural. It is so radical. It is so different. And this same statement, just by itself, doesn't make any sense. How in the world do the last become first, and the first become last? What's he talking about? Well, he wants them to know that their significance in this life does not matter. What matters is where you are in the life to come. Uh, for those of you who are fans, there's I'm sure there's a few. It's racing season now, some full swing. It's a tradition in our family to watch the race every Sunday afternoon. And it would always be going on in the background. And I think we could all say, if we have any knowledge of racing at all, it doesn't matter who leads the most laps. What matters is who crosses the finish line. You know, in a similar way, I would say, it doesn't matter how far ahead everybody in this world seems to be. What matters is who ends up in victory lane. And Jesus is saying here in the simplest way, look, the people who seem to be ahead of it all in this life, they're going to be last. And the people who seem like the absolute losers in this life, they're going to be first. Practically speaking, the last are those who are like the dependent children The poor who give up resources and relationships in this life to put Jesus first. You know it's going to cost you something, right? Like you're just... The ones who sacrifice their own lives for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. The ones who take up the manner of service for Jesus and his people. Christians, believers, that's what I'm talking about. They will be in the life to come first. They will be the ones who enter the kingdom and enjoy eternal life because Jesus has saved them from their sin. And we just need to go ahead and accept the fact. I think this would be a good reality check for all of us this morning that some of us are not going to be the most popular people in this world. If you're here, and you're a student, or you're a college student, and you're following Jesus, just go ahead and accept it. You will not be the most popular person at your school if you're going to follow Jesus. Confront somebody with the gospel one time and see how popular you are after that. For those of you who are adults, i, I got to say this just as sincerely as I can. Some businesses will make more money than you and they will get more contracts than you because by the very nature of the fact that they have no ethical code, and they're willing to undercut you. You will be challenged to take shortcuts. You will be challenged to do things unethically to get ahead. Some guys will always make more money than you. They will always beat you to the contract because you're willing to live a life dedicated to the glory of God and submitted to Jesus Christ. And guess what? This text tells us it's okay. I want you to know, parents, that um, there are going to be some parents who are more popular and well liked than you are. It's going to seem like their family relationships are just so much better. Why? Because you're unwilling. (laughs) You're unwilling to let your children drift in the same direction as everyone else. And I would say, even for those of you who are retired, some people will enjoy a more luxurious retirement than you. You understand that? They don't care about investing in the gospel or putting resources into the kingdom of God. They've lived a life for themselves. This is their time to spend it. And yet you have graciously and kindly sacrificed of your income and your time for years and years and years and you just can't be as far ahead as the material. And guess what? It's okay. Because the first will be last and the last will be first. It's not just eternal life, but it's even eternal significance. It's better to be worst here than to be last. I mean, first here, excuse me, last here than to be first then. And it's better to be last now than to be first then. A lot of somebodies here are going to be nobodies, or excuse me, a lot of nobodies here are going to be somebodies on that last day, and that is the principle that we must grasp. So, because of the benefits in the life to come, it is worth it all to follow Jesus. I'll tell you a quick story, and then we'll be done. It comes from the Annals of History, December 4th, 1857. A man by the name of David Livingston, he was a famous pioneer missionary to Africa from England. And you've probably studied them in history. You may not remember them. He addresses the students of Cambridge University. And this is part of his address. And he shows us through years of experience what Jesus intended to, pass, to teach us in this passage. Listen to his speech to these aspiring students. For my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifices I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can this really be a sacrifice? Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward and healthful activity? The consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say, rather, it is a privilege, anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with foregoing of common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to shrink, but let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing with, when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. And then these closing lines I never made a sacrifice. Never made a sacrifice? The man who gave up the opportunity for a prestigious medical career in England to spread the gospel into previously unexplored parts of Africa never made a sacrifice? The man who lost his wife due to malaria as she tried to follow him into the jungles of the mission field never made a sacrifice? The man who would die in the jungle, separated from all of his family in modern day Zambia from acute disease, never made a sacrifice? We know He did, but how can you really call it a sacrifice? When? You enjoy the resources that God provides in this life and the significance and eternal life promised in the next. Admittedly, God is probably not calling you into the jungle of Africa like David Livingston. But He may very easily be calling you to forego A relationship, a job opportunity, a possession, a hobby, to pursue him more radically. And what does the text remind us? There's no sacrifice. It's worth it. It's totally worth it. The inherent benefits of following Jesus, both in this life and the life to come. Relationships and resources, a life and legacy, it's worth it. So what do you do with this? Only two things. Everyone in this room, I think there's only two things that we can do today. Either you're in here today and you need to repent, to turn from whatever you think is so important and start following Jesus. It's so simple. He's better than whatever you've got. I promise you that. Repent of your sin. Rely on Jesus. That could be one group. And the second is this. Rejoice. If you've already done that, stop looking for the empty glass. Stop looking for the dark clouds. The sun is shining and it is bright. And sure, this life is tough, but the, the next one's coming. And we should rejoice. We need to rejoice at the opportunity to serve Jesus in this way. And so, if your attitude's been sour, if you've been focusing on all the negative, maybe as I close this in prayer, you should turn from that and ask for God's help to recognize the blessings that He's given you in following Him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you've been good to us. Some have yet to realize Your goodness, and I pray that they would today. Right now. they would turn in their hearts from whatever it is they're trusting in and relying on for satisfaction, and that they would find their satisfaction and peace and joy and eternal life in You. And for those of us who are believers and have been tempted to look on the costs associated with You, I pray that we would see the benefits, the blessings, Keep our minds off of the obligations, but may we see the opportunities and that we would follow you with joy today, realizing that you're the one that sacrificed. You sacrifice for our well-being, our good, and I pray that that would sustain us in the most difficult seasons of life and that practically give us joy as we serve you this week. in Jesus' name I pray and ask these things. Amen.